Fan the daffodils, you candlelit avrils. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. As I record this, there's an absolute bollocks of a housefly on the front of my computer monitor. Um, I'm not into killing houseflies. I prefer to try and usher them out of the room using wind where possible, but it's just that time of year. About about a week into August, it gets very houseflyish. There's a particular type of housefly. They're not blue bottles. They're not green bottles. They're not huge. They're medium-sized houseflies. And I really, really dislike them. They're houseflies that... They just love human skin. They, they love human skin and anything that my mouth has touched. They also hate leaving via an open window. And they, they'll stay in the same room for maybe five days. And this particular housefly, their favourite thing to do is to just land on my skin. Just land on my skin. Doesn't matter how much I bat them away. They just like to land on my, my exposed leg. Yeah, it is always this time of year. Because it's only in late July and early August that I wear shorts in my house. And I associate that tickle on my leg with wearing shorts. So it's just this fucking fly, whatever breed it is, and its favourite thing to do is to land on my skin as much as humanly possible. And when it's not landing on my skin, it likes to land on the, the bit of my mug of tea where my lips touch. And I don't know whether that same fly has been crawling through dog shit. That's the only fly actually that I'll get angry enough that I'll try and kill it. It's the only, because we're talking days here. We're talking days of one fly being in the room, landing on my skin. Landing on the TV when I'm looking at it. Trying to play a video game and the fly decides to land on the TV. It's as if the fly isn't real and I'm going a bit mad. And it's just this fly that knows exactly how to piss me off. And they've just returned every summer at this time for most of my life. So I have tried to kill this fly. It doesn't work because they're the fastest ones. I refuse to use fly spray. Because when you spray a fly with fly spray, it takes about a half an hour for him to die. And I just don't believe in doing that. I'd rather be annoyed by a fly than to let that happen. And the spiders seem to be just sitting on their fucking arses Because I do allow spiders in my house. If I see a spider in my gaff, I don't remove it. I let them set up their web, do their thing, because they're not harming me. But the spiders seem to take a break when these fucking August houseflies come out. I've tried looking up what the fly is. I've taken photographs of it. I sent pictures of it to Kali Ennis, who's an expert in insects. I don't even think he came back to me with a... Like an exact answer as to what fly it is. Because if I can just find out the exact name of this specific medium-sized fly that lands on my skin. I don't know, then I'd, I'd learn about it. I'd read about it. The more information I have about this specific breed of fly, the more compassionate I can be towards it and just allow it to exist and let it land on my forehead. It loves salty human sweat. I think what this fly wants is the saltiness of August human sweat because it lands on my fucking forehead when it's a bit too warm and I might have a bead of sweat. Then I slap myself in the face and then on like day three of being consistently harassed by this fly 
I start to get phantom tingles in my body. I start to imagine the fly landing on my leg or landing on my arm when it hasn't. There's no real solution. You open a window and then more come in. Then, you've, then you're dealing with two of them and I'm not resorting to chemical warfare. And then in about, about two weeks, the end of August, when it starts to get cooler, then I won't hear from this breed of fly again. And then what happens? That's when the big fat bastard spiders come out. The European house spiders, the huge ones, who I'm sure would have no problem devouring this fly, they seem to come out and start wandering around the house as soon as this fly is gone. And then I'm being passive aggressive with the spider. Like, where the fuck were you last week? Because I know about those, I've spoken about this many times, those huge European house spiders, the ones that you can hear if they're on lino, they come out at the end of August. They're the male spiders who are searching for the female spiders. Because what they've done is they've actually masturbated into their own hands and then they walk around the house with spider hands full of sperm and then the female spider who's like behind a washing machine or whatever she lays a little a nest full of eggs and he just punches the nest of eggs with his own cum and then she eats him and even though they're huge and terrifying massive spiders I always let them be because I just feel sorry that like that's what their life is I feel sorry for them but like why can't they come out a week beforehand and deal with this prick of a fly I might have to start getting one of those fucking zappers that you hang on the wall and then my living room turns into a kebab shop. No, I won't do that because if if I had one of those, I'd end up electrocuting myself. So this week's podcast is not about flies or spiders. I have a fantastic guest on the podcast this week. It's from a live podcast I recorded a couple of months back in London in a venue called The Troxy. It was the biggest live podcast I've ever done. It was 3,000 people in this wonderful art deco gorgeous theatre called the Troxy in London and my guest was Scroobius Pip who's a spoken word artist a rapper a podcaster a twitch streamer an actor Scroobius Pip has had a career that's more than 20 years long and he's a lovely lovely person and someone who I've known over the years and someone who's been a huge help to me Scrobius Pip got me into podcasting. He was the one who showed me how to podcast, to make it happen. Before I get into the podcast with Scrobius Pip, I want to do a few little plugs for him. His podcast is called Distraction Pieces. He's been doing it for years. I think he started it back in about 2012 or 2013. He has a wonderful back catalogue with some fantastic interviews. Distraction Pieces is a brilliant podcast. He's just started a second podcast, a new one with his mate, Stu Whiffin, called Tell Me About It. Also, Scroobius Pip is a Twitch streamer. Um, Just Google Scroobius Pip Twitch if you want to catch his Twitch stream. He's a very interesting, funny, kind, compassionate person who has achieved quite a lot with his art over the years. So that's what we speak about. We speak about making art. We speak about making podcasts. We speak about neurodivergence. We speak about the importance of failure within creativity. And it was a wonderful chat with a lovely audience. And I hope you enjoy it. God bless. So I first came across you in about 2007. 
I saw you had a song called Thou Shalt Always Kill. Initially, I thought you were an Islamic fundamentalist. <laughs> that was my first thought. It I happens. Because I'd never seen someone with that beard before. Yeah. I'd never, I didn't, I was in Limerick and I didn't know those beards were cold because it was 2007 and those beards didn't become cold until 2012. I was going to say they weren't yet. They, they really weren't, but it took a while. Actually, just before I get into your career, you, you were like almost blamed for every hipster in the world having a beer, beard. Yeah, pretty much. I invented hipsters. Um... But like literally, didn't, didn't when, when hipster, because I remember... <laughs> There was a Guardian yeah. article. There was a Guardian article that had an illustration, a picture of a typical hipster, and one of the little arrows that came from it said, "Beard, um, big beard, uh, like rapper Scroobius Pip or spoken word artist Scroobius Pip." So, I'm actually in the history of, of yeah. hipsters. But I invented hipsters. I invented spoken words. I invented podcasts. Um, <laughs> I'm about to invent screenwriting I'm, I'm the elon musk of of arts and culture i just <laughs> i turn up and claim it that was me yep i invented that one <laughs> i did that um <laughs> but thou shalt always kill was a viral video before viral videos were a thing like i first saw yeah. that i didn't see it on tv i saw it on, on someone's bebo flashbacks amazing you i know, love it yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that, that's how it was being passed around. Yeah. And it was really important for me because I just knew the lads making this, they don't have a big label. They've clearly done this themselves. And this looks like a self-produced thing that they've kind of put online. Uh, we made that for 300 quid and we borrowed 200 of that quid because we didn't have 300 quid. <laughs> Genuinely, a mate of Dan Lasaks paid for, for, t for 200 of the of the 300 quid and we shot it all over I think we did like a three day shoot on it or something and yeah and, and then it went mental was the internet the reason that that went mental yeah yeah MySpace initially uh, uploading yeah, the song to MySpace yeah got it on people's r r radar I burnt off w one c CDR of it <coughs> of Thou Shout and I wrote our name and the name and I put it in an envelope and I put a note and I sent it to John Kennedy at XFM and I said um, Kate Nash said that we should send you this <laughs> and she had we'd done a gig with her a few, a few days before she said you should send that to John Kennedy and he played it that night and it all blew up from there and, and I was yeah I recorded the vocal in my bedroom at my mum's house I put three mattresses up I had a step ladder I taped the microphone to because I didn't have a mic stand and just recorded it there. And yeah, it was all, all of a sudden it was on the radio, on the internet, on MySpace, all over the place. Now, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with uh, musical lineages and I'm, I'm obsessed mm -hmm. with listening to music and trying to hear the DNA of music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my personal opinion is that idols, Sleaford Mads, and now Wet Leg, three mm. bands, yeah, yeah. I don't think they would be doing what they do if it wasn't for the shit that you were doing in the late 2000s. It's really interesting, because it's mad how... Like, we were never that big. Like, we never made... Yeah. We played some decent-sized venues, but we were never, like, regular chart-toppers or anything like that. But when I had um, idols on, 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 on the podcast, 
they said then, yeah, we heard that when we were at uni and it influenced their writing and their style and approach. And same with Sleaford's, when I had Jason on. I think I'm big with people whose names begin with J. So Joe from Idols was all over it and Jason was all over it. And yeah, he heard it in a fish and chip shop. He heard, heard Thou Shout. It was because, I think it was because it got onto like daytime Radio 1. Mm-hmm. And that's the bit that's, that's different. There's loads of amazing smaller acts and stuff like that that, that that don't maybe influence things as much as maybe that did. But because we, we never expected it to, it didn't have a chorus. It wasn't three and a half minutes long or whatever. It didn't have any of the structure of what you'd expect a pop, a pop hit to be. So I think it stood out to the right people. Like, I'm just, I guarantee there was yeah. millions of people around the country who it, was, it had to be played because it was picked as someone's record of the week. It had to be played on every show on Radio 1 for that week. And it was people who were really into music. Yeah. So when I was, I would have heard it in college and it mm. was the people who were really, really into music who were listening to what you were doing. And it definitely gave us confidence to go like, all right, okay, if you're rapping as such, you can do it in your own accent. Yeah. Like, that I, was really important to me because, again, I, it, it, everyone I knew growing up who, like, even when me and my mates had mess about and freestyle, we'd do it in an American accent <coughs> and that felt like a joke. And yeah. I was like, I don't want this to feel like a joke. I want this. It's the weirdest thing. It's why every time I did, did radio or after gigs, I'd always do the merch booth of myself and I'd talk to people and the first thing most people say, I'd go, you sound exactly like you do on the records. Like, yeah, they're my records. That's, but that's me. It's <laughs> that's hard my, to realise it I sound. now, but like in the 2000s and before the 2000s, to do, hip, like, I know the song isn't strictly hip-hop, but it's hip-hop adjacent. 100%. It wouldn't have happened. I, I got into spoken word because I didn't know any rap producers. I was yeah. into hip-hop. I wasn't into spoken word, and then I started doing it. I was into hip-hop. I didn't have any beats. And then, you know, I learnt more in the spoken word world and, and fell in love with that. But, yeah. But it was really, it was a shame. Not, I, I don't know, a shameful the word. To, to make a song in the 90s or the 2000s in your own accent was seen as death. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, you have to try and sound American. Like, even... Yeah. Like... <clears throat> There's a, a, an amazing fucking rap group from London from the early 90s called the London Posse. Yeah. Incredible fucking amazing stuff. But London Posse were doing rap in a London accent and it really wasn't accepted at the time. Like quite a lot of London rappers at that time in the early 90s were trying to sound American. Yeah. And even, like we take for granted. I, I think what my personal opinion is that around... 2006, when illegal downloading had started to take over record labels, yeah. that's when people started to realise, oh, fuck it, there's no such thing as breaking America anymore. Like, remember the days of, like, the idea that, like, Blur were huge in the UK and Ireland and then no one had ever heard of them in the fucking US. Yeah. Like, that's nuts. Yeah. But you had bands, like, even Blur, when they did... Um, that album with Song 2, yep. Blur were trying to sound like Pavement. Yeah. Because Blur were being pressured to try and get into the American market. 100%. So bands, whether it was hip-hop, whether it was indie, 
were like, try and sound a little bit American. Don't sing or rap in your own accent. That's shameful. Yeah. And hearing you do that in your own accent was like, wow. Okay, there is a way to do something and to make it sound cool. But weirdly, it was because of that. It was because of the clarity as well and the enunciation that we were kind of tipped to blow up in America. And we never, like, we toured a bit, but it wasn't like we had... Rick Rubin was looking at maybe signing us and all sorts of amazing people. But that was because Dizzy had blown up in the UK. Yeah. America couldn't understand him at all. Mm. They couldn't, literally couldn't understand a word he said because he was in his own accent, but, yeah. but not clear to them. And they felt a lot of, of labels seemed to think that because what we were doing was clearly British, was unlike anything in America, but they could probably understand it. When Yangs hear English rappers, they hear it as posh. Yeah. No matter what the accent is, yeah. they, they hear it as like fucking yeah. Prince Charles wanking on a cracker. Yeah. But the beauty of it is if you're doing kind of spoken wordy stuff, they also hear like loads of extra intelligence that maybe isn't there. So I'd always put as much intelligence <laughs> as I could into it, but America would think I was like a professor or some shit. There was All that right. vibe though from, from your earlier stuff. There was the sense of fuck me, this cunt's got shit to say. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I do, like, I hate interrogating lyrics now, but what did you mean when you said the Beatles were just a band? <laughs> that actually, the, the first one that I wrote of that list of bands was Radiohead. And the yeah. reason I wrote it was because I fucking adore Radiohead, but I was having Christmas dinner with my mum and my brother, and I think my aunt might have come down and I was passing the potatoes and I was thinking, it's mad that Tom York's also doing this, isn't it? <laughs> like, it's mad that Tom York has got his aunt round and his brother's taking the piss out of him or whatever and he's passing it. And, it's like, and yeah. it was that, that was the idea that these are all just bands and they're all just people. So yes, the art that they create is this different thing, but it came from, I said, a Christmas lunch because I thought everyone in the UK is just there... He's not Tom York from Radiohead. He's the, that person's nephew and that person's son and that person's brother. Because it's a beautiful. So that's what that bit was about. But then it turned into like a battle cry, and everyone thought it was an attack on. Yeah. Everyone who was into those bands would be like, These "I are love you, but beings. Oasis ain't just a band, mate. Get real." But I loved how it, it, it's, it's, <laughs> it was quite prophetic in the sense that that again is something we kind of can't relate to right now. Yeah. If the Beatles were around today, they'd all have Twitter and we'd fucking hate them because John Lennon would be insufferable. Yeah. But, but like, let's just be honest here. Like, it's... Radiohead... Like, I, I, I was I, talking to you backstage I, I, about... Genuinely, I've got two videos saved on my phone that I like to watch and just laugh at. And one is Paul McCartney acting like a Wally and one is Ringo Starr acting like a Wally. And that proves that... <laughs> They're the two around still, and it's like, oh, look at these fucking dickheads. <laughs> but I was chatting to you backstage about, like, how much I adore The Prodigy. Yeah. Because you know Liam Howlett in real life, and I can't believe that. <laughs> and, but when I was growing up listening to The Prodigy, they weren't just a band. No. Like, literally, these were ethereal gods. And what made The Prodigy ethereal gods was... I. Like, I didn't even know what they looked like. I had the Prodigy experience on tape, and I opened it up, and all there was was cartoons of the members. Yeah. And I just loved that one of them had a 
bogger name like Liam Howlett. Yeah. The most Irish name going, <laughs> yeah. you know. 100%. He sounded like I, I, I should rent a generator off him. Yeah. And, but... Next to Keith Flint and Max yeah. even like the most comic book names ever. But I like, love it. <laughs> now that we have so much access to stars, yeah. you, you can't think of... Rock stars aren't gods anymore. Like, Beyonce is the best example of someone who tries. Like, Beyonce's not on Twitter. Beyonce is able yeah. to be like, I'm not a human, I'm a fucking alien. Yeah. I, am, I am royalty. That's what Beyonce can do. But most other artists, no matter how big they are, I have to go onto Twitter and read about a shit they had that morning. Yeah. And yeah. now they're human beings and they're flawed. And it does get in the way of how I worship that art. The, the, that is summed up by the time I saw Prince live. And it had that feeling. It didn't feel like I was watching an artist or a musician. It felt like an alien mm -hmm. force. Like, I'd never had anything like that. Since the age of about 13 or 14, any money I got, I spent on going to gigs. I was always mm -hmm. about going to see bands. So I've seen thousands of bands at that point, bands I absolutely idolise. And when Prince stepped on stage, it was, it, it, yeah, it was like something else. And it's because of that, because of the, the, the mystery behind him, I but guess. But do you remember being in school and everyone said that he had his ribs removed so he could suck his own dick? Yeah. I think that's why I was so but excited to see him. that's the thing, too. That, that existed for fucking years. Yeah. Like, imagine that. That, wouldn't, that just couldn't happen now. Someone would just go onto Twitter and go, Prince, did you remove your ribs to suck your own dick? I mean, no. I mean, that, that might have been a negative in your school, but I went to an all-boys Catholic school, and that was very much a positive. He was praised for that. We, we ended up... Oh, my God! It ended up in my school. There was a fella we called Bin Laden. His second... No, sorry, Bin Laden. His second name was Leden, and his party trick was that he could climb into a wheelie bin and he claimed he was able to self-fillate in his own wheelie bin. So, but it was inspired by Prince conversation. So Leden, he's, oh, I didn't use his first name now because he's probably a fucking accountant now with kids. But what Leden used to do was he would crawl into a wheelie bin with his legs up there and his head there and he would claim, I do this at home, I suck my own dick like Prince. Bin Leden, we called him, it was after 9-11. Weirdly, <laughs> I, at some point, I came to a rave here in, in, in this room, in this room, and I was l leaving, and they had kind of the, the barricade bits out the front. I was leaving, and as I walked off, someone went, Saddam Hussein, and I, I genuinely turned around and went, think you mean Bin Laden, mate? <laughs> Saddam, it, was, it was before Saddam had the big beard. So I've been called Bin Laden loads of times, but it was before Saddam had the big beard, so it was literally, I corrected him on his insult. No, actually... Do you remember they made Saddam <laughs> grow the beard when they executed him? Yeah, yeah exactly. The Yanks are cunts, yeah, aren't they? they're fuckers. Like, I'm no fan of Saddam Hussein. I'm not a fan of Saddam Hussein at all, but the way that they fucking made him grow, they made him grow his beard, hung him on CNN, and then released a lot of stories that he used to love Doritos. I love it. Do you remember yeah. that? So when Saddam Hussein was a prisoner and then they got some Marine that was his guard and they said to him, what's he really like? Like, he loves fucking Doritos. <laughs> and then CNN were like, all oh, right, but I thought you hated America, Saddam. It's like when they went through Bin Laden's hard drive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they found, what did they find on Bin Laden's hard drive? Um, a lot of- Some uh, cartoon. A lot, of, a lot of Al-Qaeda shit, obviously. Yeah. And then... <laughs> he had the meme, Charlie bit my finger. That's the one, yeah. 
like saved like nine times <laughs> in different files. It's fucking, it's a funny video. It defense. is funny. I wonder what Charlie's getting up to now. His, I mean, I won't defend him for many things, but I will defend him for his love of the Charlie bit my finger video. Just imagine Bin Laden in his compound going around biting his friend's fingers as a laugh. I'm Charlie, I'm Charlie. <laughs> Death to America. <laughs> so, just before we move on, though, I, I've not, I, I don't think I've told anyone, I've definitely not told you how I know Bin Laden? Liam Howlett. All right. Okay. Other end, other yeah. end of the spectrum. But I, I've just realised it works with your kind of music lineage thing. C because I grew up as a Prodigy fan as well. Mm -hmm. I remember taping this stuff off the radio yeah. and, and listening to it on my paper round on my Walkman. Um, but we ended up meeting because my accountant <laughs> is his accountant's son. I was expecting something cooler, man. We were sniffing glue in Essex. How, no, no, how basic is that? Like, I know, yeah. Like, like Essex is so small and not rock and roll that there's only one family who look after anyone in music because <laughs> they know how those taxes work. And yeah, that's, that's genuinely how we met. And then he ended up being a fan of my stuff and asked me to write for The Prodigy. Fuck off. And he sent me some beats and I wrote some stuff and I was too young and ignorant at the time. So I wrote... Scroobius Pip type lyrics. I wrote this one that was a history of hip hop that kind of goes through the full history of hip hop, talks about how the Ultra Mags yeah. kind of invented sampling, and then says, ain't that right, Liam? Because Liam sampled the Ultra Mags yeah. a load of times. So it's all kind of a, a self referential. And then Liam was like, this is wicked, but like we were asking you to write stuff for Keith Flint, and that's not his <laughs> style. Like, Keith yeah. isn't going to come back from Firestarter with a wordy rap about the history of hip hop. So it didn't work out at all. And yeah, I always regretted it because I thought I should have, if I'd been more experienced, I would have thought, right, what can I, I would have written a song called like Whiplash or something. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a that's, tough, that's, that's a tough gig, right? Songs for the fucking Prodigy. Yeah. Because the Prodigy's lyrics, Jesus Christ, they're I'd silly. I'd love it now. They're, they're silly, but they're amazing. Because I'd get into it more. Do you know what I mean? It was purely my own ignorance and a mistake there. Now, yeah, I'd be all over that. But, but how do you follow, like, I've got the poison, I've got the remedy. I've got the poison, so something, 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 the remedy. Yeah. You don't follow that. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? Or I'm gone sending to outer space to find another race. Fair play to you, go. Good luck. Um, <laughs> t tell me about Essex, because I, I don't really understand, like, so I grew up in Ireland. There you go. Essex to me meant the prodigy and large tits. Yeah. That was what Essex was presented to me as on television, the prodigy and, and page three boobs. You've pretty much nailed the spectrums of Essex. Because it is a weird thing, like when The Only Way is Essex blew up. I was too like, old for that. Yeah, it, it was a mad one because everyone thought that, the, that that was Essex. And that's part of Essex, but there's wealthier parts and there's poorer parts. Um, and the reason I've stayed in my same hometown is I think it's really important to be reminded of, of where you're from. I always remember I did a gig um, at the Shepherd's Bush um, Apollo, is it? Um, and I was on with The Cure, with Stuart Lee, Steve Coogan, like loads of my idols. And then I got the train home and some, some girls from T Tilbury tried to put makeup on me, steal my shoe and set fire to my beard. 
And I'm sitting there thinking, I can't say to them, I was just shared a stage with the Cure, young lady, because <laughs> they're not going to give a fuck. And again, it's great. That was one of my first big moments that could have gone to my head, that I'm like, I'm doing these gigs with these people. And I was like, nah. I'm back still, in Essex. You, you're still that weird hairy prick. And, <laughs> and the people of Essex ain't going to appreciate it. So, yeah, there's a variation, I guess. It's, there's a lot of r r rougher areas and poor areas. My area has had a lot of racism, a lot of drugs. Um, when, who was it? Nick something, no. The guy was b before Nigel Farage as the main racist. Oh, Nick Griffin, yeah, Nick that Griffin. fucking prick. When Nick Griffin went off the radar after a bit because someone like punched him in the street or egged yeah, him or yeah, something, yeah. the first place he did his public address was t t 10 minutes up the road from me because that's the kind of area. So when you say racism, you obviously mean organised racism, like National Front skinhead type shit. Exploited, exploited racism. Yeah. A lot of people who are working class who've got nothing to do but do coke in the pub and whatever else, or a lot of people who are losing jobs. The areas that immigration came to on a, a second wave, mm -hmm. so unlike London that had so much amazing initial immigration and the communities were built off of it, so, so much culture was brought my kind of area of Essex was, oh, now they're coming to steal our jobs or whatever else and all that ignorance yeah. that can then be exploited and marketed to and flies through your door by mm -hmm. your Nick Griffins and other such cretins. And this is while you were growing up? Yeah, yeah. We, uh, my parents all grew up in South London, which mm -hmm. was an incredibly mixed and diverse area. They couldn't afford to start a family there, because London's expensive. We moved out to Essex, and in my school, in my year, there was one kid that wasn't white, two. Mm -hmm. Two kids that weren't white, and that's changed a lot now. Mm -hmm. It's a far more diverse area, and it's wicked. I, I love it. Um, but yeah, it's still, you look at it as a few years behind on the developments of dealing with cultures coming together of dealing with as said the myths and stupidity that is so easy to mm -hmm. sell to people who haven't got too much to to get excited about i guess mm -hmm. you know it's easier to get angry at the people that are taking what's theirs or whatever else rather than mm -hmm. you know accept the facts of it all um <clears throat> we were chatting backstage about um so i've got autism yes and I was chatting about how my, I, I hate the fact that autism is referred to as a disorder because I don't experience it as a disorder at all. I experience it as something that's hugely advantageous. Um, like the second I walked into this venue, like I, I was supposed to be up here doing a sound check, but instead I was just screaming and shouting about the Art Deco. And I got tremendously, terribly excited about it. And that's my autism. That, that's, a, that's a wonderful thing for me. It's you, a lovely thing to walk into a building and then to admire the architecture and to have that awareness and to have that make me feel good. Your autism got me through seven months in an Airbnb on my own in Canada because I was shooting a film and you're pod going for a walk at night and listening to your podcast and the deep dives you do on stuff kept me sane, man, because it was the middle of the pandemic, couldn't socialise, and I'm shooting this TV show, but... I'm not in every day. I'm often not in for fucking four or five weeks. Couldn't fly home for Christmas, all this kind of thing. So I genuinely remember around Christmas walking and, and listening. I, I did the same kind of night w w walk 
and I went through th- th- three different episodes of yours th- three nights in a row, and it was just perfect. Thank you very much, Pip. Hot takes. It, it, was, it was an era of hot takes, and I know you don't like the hot takes to take over. Yeah. Because, you know, you need the, the variation. But, yeah, it was an era of hot takes and then deep dives into, like, Irish history and stuff. And yeah. it was fucking brilliant. So... Thank you. For me, that's a huge advantage. So if I decide tomorrow I want to start thinking about mustard, I'll fucking really think about mustard. <laughs> and I'll, I'll think about it so much yeah. that I will unearth something about the history of mustard that's really interesting. <laughs> and I hate that that's diagnosed as a, dis- as a disorder. That's not a disorder. Yeah. It is a disorder if I was working in an office. Then it's a fucking disorder and everyone wants me out. But in the job that I have, it's not a disorder. It's, it's a huge advantage. And you, ha- uh, you have stammering. You yeah. stammer. And I checked it online. Stammering is also neurodivergence. Yeah. So within neurodivergence, which is 40% of the population, so that's 40% of this room, you have autism, ADHD, you have dyslexia, dyspraxia, Tourette syndrome, and stammering. Yeah. And... Your stammering has been a huge advantage to what you do as a spoken word artist. A hundred percent. I didn't go to an amazing school, and I think my vocabulary was increased by the fact that I spent a, l- a lot of my youth in any conversation thinking a sentence or so ahead, finding a word I'm going to stammer on and replacing it with another word, having to learn alternatives for almost every word so that I could kind of hide this thing. I'm now, I just stammer freely, as you will be able to hear. Um, But that was key to my kind of survival at school, was to try and bury it down or avoid it as much as possible. And I think that helped me with music, with spoken word, with Americans thinking I'm a professor a professor because of my big wordy raps <laughs> with the podcast with all of these other things I think if I didn't have a stammer I wouldn't have had all that things but I, I, I do a lot of work with the British Stammering Association and I was being interviewed for a book by this amazing guy who was doing this amazing book about stammers but the, he asked one question at the end and it it fucked up my whole week like genuinely it put me in a weird mental spiral because he asked if you could get rid of it, would you? Mm-hmm. And that's not the same as if you could have never had it, would you? Because the fact is, at this point, it's not helping me at all. So I would, but I can't. And that was a mad question to, uh, to end mm-hmm. on, because I had to go, yep, I think I'd get rid of it if I could. <laughs> that's the end of the interview on my way on, on the train back but to Essex. <laughs> going like, Fucking great, I can't though. So you've just made me face the fact that, again, I embrace it. I speak all the time Mm -hmm. about the benefits it's been. But in that moment, he kind of accidentally made me face the fact it's it's done its good. (laughs) And now it's just mildly annoying. (laughs) Yeah, because I get asked that as well. Like, if, if... If I could, if if you could not be artistic, would you choose it? And yeah. no, but, but, I, I just think I'd be into Love Island, Lords. Yeah, you, you, your autism helps your podcast. The only way my stutter helps my podcast is like runtime. I get slightly longer runtimes, <laughs> but, but that's not the be all and end all. I've clocked more hours than I would have if I didn't have a stammer at this stage. But but. <laughs> 
Again, I, I don't, I wouldn't consider stammering to be a disorder. The disorder yeah, is... I agree. Like, people who stammer are more likely to experience social anxiety, more likely to experience depression. That's not because of the fucking stammer. It's because of people teasing you, people being uncomfortable about the stammer, yeah. the exclusion that you feel. Yeah. Same way... <clears throat> Um, because of my autism, I, uh, I ended up with fucking massive panic attacks and being afraid of society because society meant consistent and continual rejection. Mm. And no matter how much I tried to be normal, people go, oh, you're a lunatic. You're, you're mad. You're eccentric. <laughs> and that's not nice all the time. So I became afraid of people. My autism didn't make me afraid of people. People reacting to it made me afraid of people. Yeah. And... It's something we need to look at with neurodivergence. The example I always use, so dyslexia is neurodivergence, right? And dyslexia is when you're not great at reading words. Simple as that. But here's the thing, people with dyslexia, they get anxiety, they get depression, tremendously low self-esteem because people mislabel them as being stupid. Uh, they're more likely to fail at school because school will measure them on their ability to read. Mm -hmm. But if you look at, I always use pubs as the example. Do you know the way you might have a pub and the pub's name is the dog and the duck? Or yeah, the yeah, horse yeah. and hound? Yeah. Like the reason that exists is reading is quite a recent thing for the majority of the population. Yeah. 300 years ago in Ireland, in England, people just didn't fucking read. This was something that Particularly rich... Particularly the working classes. No, they, they spoke. It was an yeah. oral culture. So, because most of the population didn't read because they didn't have access to it, the pub would have a painting of a dog and a duck. And it was just a square with a painting of a dog and a duck. And these oral people would say, go down to the pub, the dog and the duck. Which one is that? The one with the fucking dog and the duck outside. <laughs> but people existed then who were dyslexic. Yeah. And no one knew. And they didn't have to experience rejection, anxiety, depression, because they lived in a culture where being able to read was not the measure of your intelligence. And that's something that only arrived after the Industrial Revolution. Now, I'm not saying we should all not read, but I'm just showing that's an example of the problems and the mental health struggles of dyslexia not being caused by the person's brain, but being caused by the attitudes to society that society has towards that person. Yeah. And that's why we as a society need to change our fucking attitudes when we come across someone who's neurodivergent in any way. Well, gr gr growing up, I was really l lucky because my parents put me into some speech therapy and stuff and they took me out of it because they felt that the speech therapist was kind of approaching it as if I'm, I'm broken and I need to be fixed. Mm -hmm. And their argument was, I'm not broken. Mm -hmm. but that's just how I speak. I don't need to be fixed. If I want help and can have help, then that's good. But... It's not a broken and, f and fixed thing. And I now work with Stammer a lot, or with the, the British Stammering Association. And one of the big things is that representation of people with stammers in film, TV, mm -hmm. all of these things like that, it's not just because I've started working with them now and I want more roles. That's part of it. But mm -hmm. it's, it's also because the more people see it and the more people are aware of it, as you say, the people with the stammers aren't going to stop stammering, but mm -hmm. the people who haven't encountered one before aren't going to get nervous, aren't going to feel awkward, aren't going to mm -hmm. feel uncomfortable. I'm going to assume it's a nerves thing. Again, that's a big thing that people think stammering is to do with nerves. We're having a wonderful time 
uh, tonight. I'm here because I want to have a catch-up with you and talk to you. I'm not nervous, but I will stammer. Mm-hmm. And the same with my podcast, with my friends and family, whatever else. These are moments I'm having a wonderful time. Often, mm-hmm. if I'm more relaxed, I'll stammer more because I feel I'm turning off all of the kind of auto sw- switches I have, I have in my head to cope with it. So, yeah, there's a lot the of... The masking. Yeah, exactly. It, it's also why I think, like, a, a, we were talking backstage as well about being kind of a bit introverted and it was only in recent years I realized I'm probably like my own company because I don't have to be doing any of the work at that time Mm -hmm. I'm not having to deal with because even though I'm comfortable with my stammer my whole life has been controlling it so there's Mm -hmm. stuff in there that I'm always doing to try and avoid and uh, and get around things so Mm -hmm when I'm at home on my own and just watching loads of TV or loads of films, I'm not having to deal with any of that. And I think that's, if I've had a lot of social stuff, I think that's part of my particular needs is I need to go and go, I don't want to speak for a bit. This is exhausting. And something you said there too, which was interesting about representation of people who stammer. Mm. Like I'm just thinking in my head, I have never ever seen stammering on television that wasn't portrayed as comedic. Comedic or uh, some big tragic dramatic story. I did a show on the BBC um, two years ago now called Out of Her Mind. It was with Sarah Pascoe. And it's actually while I was in Canada in this Airbnb that I watched it on iPlayer. I got a dodgy VPN. I ripped it. I watched it illegally. Um, (laughs) I love the shame. That's fantastic, man. Just help myself. Um, and I'm only in, in one episode I've got a couple of scenes and in one of the scenes they used a take that I stammered in mm-hmm. and I didn't know they'd done that and it might have been because of the isolation but I got proper emotional about it because I don't think there's ever been a character on TV that stammers and hasn't had it explained and the problem wow. the problem with it was it was only a small stammer but people with a stammer will have recognised it instantly that that wasn't a character thing or that was a stammer and I don't think that's ever happened. And it's why now with all the scripts I'm working on, there's a couple of scripts I'm obsessed with trying to get made. The characters I've I've written for myself in there will have a stammer, but I'll just say the first time you meet the character, this character has a stammer and it will present naturally. Mm -hmm. Don't mention it again. There's no big backstory of how they almost died or this Mm -hmm. or that. There's just, there's going to be stammering. And that excites me, man, because, yeah. Because the other thing that you, you notice too is if you do have someone with a stammer, it's part of like their trauma story. Yeah, exactly. So it's just, this is... There'll so be they, a big moment that they get over it and speaking freely is their big release. Yes. And it's like, fuck off, mate. Yeah. So how far off are we from having just someone on EastEnders with a stammer? Again, for no the, reason. The, the, the thing that, that, that worries me a little bit as well, another thing that... Gets in my head. All of us have stuff that get in our heads and we beat ourselves up, particularly when you're creating. But another thing that worries me is I also <coughs> don't want to be the stammer guy. Yeah. I don't want to be the guy they get in for every character who's got a stammer because every character I've played so far hasn't had one and I get it under control. I do the work, I do the prep, I figure out where my breathing is going to be. If anything, it means I've drilled this character more than, or as much as anyone could because mm-hmm. I've really I've figured out exactly how I'm going to approach every sentence, approach every bit because that character hasn't got a stammer and I want to play characters who, who don't have stammers because I don't want it to be a, well you've got to get, I, I must stammer, it's important but as I said, I love the idea of being able to either r- r- write my own stuff or have a character that 
if a stammer feels right for I've done it a, a, a few times recently on, on self-tapes, and it's been such a buzz to, at the beginning of the self-tape, say, look, it's not in the script, but this character feels like it would be comfortable having a stammer. I'm going to turn off the, the switches and perform it naturally. I normally do a two takes. I'll give them a take without a stammer, and then I'll say, if you don't mind, I've got another one. Um, here it is. And again, that excites me, because that's fucking have true. You have, any, have you had anyone respond to that and go, that's cool, we're not going to now write this in, we're not going to explain why? No. No. Mm-hmm. But you don't get feedback on self-tapes in the acting industry. You mm-hmm. just don't. If you get it, you would. So, if, so one that comes through, we'll have that conversation. <coughs> but it's so c- common to just not hear anything. But it excites me, because what we should be striving for in acting and in any art is to get truth across, to find truth. And I went to see... I had um, a Tourette's hero on my podcast, amazing Mm -hmm. um, performer, and I went to see their version of a... um, It was a play... Who's the dude who does all the monologues? Not Beckett, is it? Beckett, obviously Beckett. It was a Beckett play, and it was fucking edge-of-your-seat stuff because it's a quickly delivered one, but their Tourette's would take them where it wanted to go. And the truth in it was just hugely exciting. And I get a buzz about that with finding a character that I can allow a stammer to, to have mm-hmm. its, its, its rawness in and its truth, because you can't f- fake it. Every, mm-hmm. There's a few times I've had scripts through where a character has a stammer, and I've had to say at the start of the tape, I'm not, I'm not doing the f f f f f whatever you've written in the script. I'll do your script, but when the stammer comes, it will come. I'm not going to... You're not in control of it. Yeah, that's the point of it. Again, yeah. you can, obviously, there's... I've got kind of parlour tricks. Um, <laughs> a, a, a one example is... <laughs> there's a comedian who I've had on my podcast, and his name is... D- Dylan Moran. Hard D's are a tough one for me, and that's a name I can never say. But I got taught that if you tap out, you can then say Dylan Moran... Dylan Moran, Dylan Moran, Dylan Moran. And I can say it. So it's, it's fascinating how the... It's, I, I like to show people that to show how weird it is, how the brain works, how misunderstood it is. But that's not a... Like, I don't particularly stammer on Fs. One of the beautiful <laughs> things about that is that... Uh, but that will be something that's, that's written a lot. It will be... In, in a room full of Irish people, no one gives a fuck that you couldn't pronounce the D. Everyone's just going, it's Moran, it's Moran. <laughs> but I found if I scratch my head, I can say Moran. Really? Whereas if I don't, I say Moran. So it's, it's the variation, man. The brain's <laughs> a fascinating thing. Let's have a little ocarina pause, and you will hear a digitally inserted advert that was placed there by Acast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. That was the ocarina pause. I have my ocarina with me because I'm recording this in my home studio. Hence the intrusive fly that's buzzing around. I don't have any flies in my office. I don't know why that is. There's no flies in my office. They're only in my gaff. But anyway, that was the ocarina pause. Um, There's something I want to correct that I said there in that chat with Scroobius. I said I have got autism, which is the incorrect language to use because I'm still learning. I don't got autism and I don't have autism. I am autistic. It's not something I have. I have a neurodivergent brain, which is different to a neurotypical brain. It's just a different type of brain. Also, when I speak about autism, I speak about my experience, not the experience of anybody else who is autistic. I don't want to perpetuate the myth that autism is a superpower. All I'm saying is that for me and my environment and the job that I have, my autism certainly is an advantage to the specific job that I have in my specific environment. However, it was not this way in school and it would not be this way if I was in a different situation. Through much difficulty, I have formed a life where I can thrive within those parameters. But if those parameters were changed, I might not thrive. So I speak for me, and me alone, and my experience. This podcast is supported by you, the listener, you glorious bollocks, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. This podcast is my full-time job. This podcast is how I earn a living. I adore this work. I absolutely love it. It's a privilege and a pleasure to make this podcast for you each week. What I'm asking is, if this podcast brings you enjoyment, solace, entertainment, distraction, whatever the fuck, please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. If you met me in real life, would you say, fuck it, I'd buy him a pint? Well, you can via the Patreon page. Now, if you can't afford that, don't worry about it. Because I want to keep this podcast free for everybody to listen to. So if you can't afford to be a patron of this podcast, you can listen for free. Because the person who is paying is paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast and I get to earn a living. It's a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness. But if you can support my work in any way, please do. Patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. Price of a pint or a cup of coffee four podcasts a month everyone's happy also it keeps the podcast independent advertisers can't come in and tell me what to speak about they can't dictate the content of the podcast they can't change it in any way because this is patron supported I have the agency to say no I'm making what I want to make and you can fuck off I really really want to keep it that way because that's the backbone of this podcast It really is. So support any independent podcaster that you enjoy. 
and go and listen to Scroobius Pips podcast Distraction Pieces and support him also you can support in any way it doesn't have to be monetary sharing liking tagging leaving reviews on the podcast or just telling a friend so I'm going to go back to the chat now where me and Scroobius Pip speak specifically about making podcasts about creativity and about the importance of failure and trying something just for the sake of it for the love of it you look a bit like uh, <laughs> Santa Claus if he's been through addiction recovery <laughs> You know, he's got that vibe, like, like Santa Claus is like, it. all that shit, man. I was flying to every house in the world drinking whiskey, man. <laughs> eight-year-olds were giving me whiskey. There was eight-year-old children leaving whiskey out. I was drinking it. I was kicking the shit out of my reindeers. And now, <laughs> I'm, he had a big red nose from the bait and I gave him. That's basically my tour in life. We've, we've nailed that there, really. <laughs> On my podcast once, I was... I got called Woke Fagan. Cause I think, and I think that's a decent look. I'm a Woke Fagan. Um, <laughs> I do want to James talk... Acaster. I should give him credit there. James Acaster. Is he with Acast? He is. That's weird. That it's feels like much, a psyop. He, he called... Feels like MI6 shit. He called me that when drunk on one of the drunk casts. I was then catching up with him six months later and I made a reference to me being Woke Fagan. He cracked up not knowing it was his joke because <laughs> he genuinely didn't remember it. And I was like, you know, that's, he's like, what? Like, yeah, if, if, he, knows, he knows his own humour perfectly. He, he nailed um, it. <laughs> so one thing I, I, need, I need to give you fucking credit for is I, I would not be doing a podcast if it wasn't for you. Well, that's good, man. I Simple appreciate as that. that. Um, like, I was in the Rubber Bandits. Yeah. And it was, like, similar enough to what you were doing with Dan Lassac, as in making this music that appeals to a very niche audience, yeah. doing the gigs, but kind of going, fucking hell, how am I supposed to make a living out of this? And... We used to do gigs up in uh, Soho Theatre, which used to be up, up there in Soho. Soha, as I thought it was called for a long time. <laughs> but I was gigging in Soho, and we used to do like, we'd do fucking 30 nights. We'd do 30 nights in Soho Theatre, which was 150 people a night. And it was so expensive to rent out the theatre, and kind of going, how the fuck am I supposed to make a career out of this? Yeah. And I was really upset. And it was 2014 or 15, and you became a fan of the song Spastic Hawk, I believed. Yeah, or, or I'd, 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 I'd been aware of you guys, and then when I was doing the Edinburgh Fringe in 2013, me and my mate Tommy was up there, he, he filmed my show for me on one of them. Um, we came to see you guys at, at a late night one, and just it took it all to a next level. I was aware of a few of your songs, but I just thought, ah, it's a bit of, it's quite funny. And you, your live performance blew me away and I got all of the songs more. So we were staying in a little two bedroom apartment at the fringe and we were just binging your videos on repeat and just became, yes, Spastic Hawk was a massive, a favorite. Thank you. So you gave me a shout, you come up to my apartment when I was in London yeah. I didn't really know what a podcast was. I'll be honest, I wasn't mm -hmm. too sure. I invented um, podcasts, yep. <laughs> That's one of my... 
That's one of mine. You just sat down with a pair of mics like this yeah. and a little recorder, and we chatted for about an hour, and it was amazing. I fucking loved it. Yeah. And I asked you, is this what you're doing now instead of gigging? And you said, I'm still doing the odd gig, but this is my main thing. This fucking podcast is my main thing. And I asked you, are you able to make money out of it? And you're like, yeah, I can make a regular income. This is my, my regular income. Yeah. And that made me think to myself, fuck it, maybe I can have a go at this. Maybe I can try doing this. And that's why I tried doing the podcast. And you introduced me to Acast. Yeah, and man. you really, really helped me in that respect. I love it, man. Again, particularly from, from doing podcasting early on, the one thing I worry about podcasting getting big is it loses that kind of feeling yeah. and it becomes competitive and stuff. And it was never about that. It was always about, I loved making a podcast because I loved listening to him. I, I want to listen to more. I helped a you out, introduce you to Acast. Like Adam Buxton came up to me and was like, he wanted to start doing a podcast, which was confusing to me because I was a fan of his, but then mm-hmm. I realised it was the highlights of a, six, a music show. He'd never done a podcast, so I helped him out a bit. I introduced him to Acast and just all sorts of things like that. And yeah, there's been loads of people along the way that I've been helpful to, but it's purely selfish. It's more stuff for me to listen to. I have a wonderful time. <laughs> There's loads of people I'm not, I'd love to hear them do a podcast. Like, there's, there's a load of people who, like the hardcore listening lads who you've met, they were lads who, I was like, I love hanging out with these guys. I love their chat. I love having them on, my, on the drunk casts. So I suggested that they start a podcast. And now, again, it's out every week. I, th- I thoroughly enjoy it. So it's purely, it helps out. Yeah, it works both ways, I guess. But it's a, it's a wonderful example of um, what I learned from you then was the, the generosity there's two ways to look at anything when it comes to an opportunity. And it's, you can either be jealous of someone or you can say, fuck it, maybe I'll give this a go. Maybe yeah. I'll give this a go. Yeah. And that's what I did. And I was able to repay you with that then when recently you got into streaming on Twitch. Yeah. So when you got onto me, I was like, well, I'm gonna help this cunt any way I can with how to stream. Yeah, Because exactly. streaming is difficult. I think all of these things though, it's like, we've. Like the, the fact that I was making a living out of podcasting blew my mind. So I was excited for anyone to do that. With the music industry stuff, I didn't expect to have a career in music. I didn't expect to have a career in radio. I mean, we spoke in the first half about having a stammer. I didn't expect to be a presenter and all these other things. So I'm always just, it's mad I get to do all this shit. And I want as many other people as possible to realize that they can do all this shit mm-hmm. as well. Because every time like I speak into, David Earl about this, this recently, amazing comedian and podcaster and actor. And um, he was saying, do you get n- nervous about like, acting and going on set and stuff? And I don't really. And I think it's because I'm three careers on from when I thought, this isn't, isn't realistic for me. Like, I shouldn't be doing this. And that everything that's happened since, I'm like, fucking mental. They're letting me do this as well. I'm on set with this lad. This is mad. So I'm just there every time going... <laughs> This is nuts. Again, like, this could end any minute. So I'm just excited to be there most of the time. And, and it all keeps going. <laughs> another thing, too, we were talking about... Um, so you do a lot of writing for television. I try to. I've but not the, had anything made yet, but I'm on it. But that's the thing with writing yeah. for TV. So, and this is one thing that I'm kind of addressing to the general fucking audience, which is, if you want to do something, if you're thinking of doing a podcast, if you're thinking of fuck it, maybe I might make some music. Maybe I might start writing poetry. Do it. 
even though it might fail, because the thing is, is that if you do it and it fails, that's not actually a failure. There's only one failure, and the only thing that's actual failure is not doing something because you were scared to. Yeah. Like, nothing exists. Th yeah. That's the truth. That's the truth. Mate, look, this is... Again, I keep going. Like, how much do you get turned down with TV writing? How much of your job is working and then that getting turned down and turned into nothing? Constantly, constantly. Yeah. And with the acting. The best example of that I've got, again, I keep saying, I've not told anyone this, but one of the best things I wrote, kind of, I started it before the pandemic and finished it over the pandemic, is a Black Mirror episode. No cunt has asked me to write a Black Mirror episode. <laughs> No one has requested it. It's fucking brilliant, but I had such a good time writing it, and I'm trying to get it somewhere. I'm trying to get the right people to have a look and see it, because I think it could be a great episode. But if it doesn't, I still learned loads from writing that. That's I had a really good time writing that. The next thing I write is improved because of it. So There's no such thing as failure on a long enough yeah. time scale. If you do the thing that you wanted to do, nobody likes it, no one picks it up, it turns into a pile of shit. Yeah. The fact that it exists informs your decisions in the future. Yeah. So, like... And realising that the process is the fun part as well. That's like, the fun, like the process, if, yeah. If, if I'd hit my agent up saying, I've got a good idea for a script, can you talk to someone about a, a, a Black Mirror? Just after that, the pandemic hit, Black Mirror, we didn't know if there was going to be any more. So I would have just got a no, it would never have happened. Instead, I went, I'm just going to write it mm -hmm. and then see. So if I get a no now and it never happens, I still got, the, I still got more fun than if I just asked for permission. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Rather than wait for someone to tell you, yeah, you can do this, just fucking get on with it and enjoy get it. On, do it and enjoy the process. And like even my book of short stories, like my first book of short stories, a huge amount of the ideas in my book of short stories were ideas for TV that were re rejected. Yeah. yeah. Shit that like, like that, that thing there, the, the story I read out about um, the two lads from Cork, that was a TV sketch I pitched to RTE in fucking 2009. Yeah. And they were just like, this is mad. We're not putting someone's skin in Rory Gallagher on RTE. <laughs> and I felt really shit about that in 2011. I felt like, oh, this idea is terrible. That was a failure. It's like, no, it wasn't a fucking failure because 10 years later, I turned it into a short story that was in a book that was a bestseller. So you the, fucking... The, n n you never ever... You never ever want to look back and go, I did nothing because I was scared. Do whatever the fuck it is. Start a podcast tomorrow if 10 people listen to it. Write a book of poetry. It's not about no one consuming it. It's about you did this thing and then you grow from it. And you get to desensitize yourself to failure. 100%. And that can be too much of an addiction. Like, I'm worried now, because I wrote s so much over the pandemic, I'm worried that I'm moving on to the next thing and not trying hard enough to get this made or that made. But I don't know if it's going to be your experience, but I find the weirdest thing I find about s screenwriting is that it's the one thing I won't really uh, talk to many people about because you sound like a lunatic. Yeah. So with music, with everything else, with a book, I've written a book with this. If someone's like, oh, what have you been up to? I've written an episode of Black Mirror. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. You're making an episode. Oh, no, 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 I'm not making one. And no one asked me to. Oh, oh. so you just, yeah, just spent a month writing it. <laughs> and the same with all the scripts. I've written this film. Oh, wicked. Like, what's happened with it? 
don't know at the moment. I'm going to spend however many years. I, I, I've been lucky to be exposed to a lot of really successful people, but talk to them about the reality of it all. And things like a show I did called Taboo, Tom Hardy and his dad spent Oh, eight, fuck it, I forgot you were in Taboo. Yeah, they, Jesus they, Christ. Well, they spent eight years getting that made. From when they had the idea and first started and writing yeah, it. Yeah, Tom Hardy wrote that with his dad. Yeah, and, and then Stephen Knight came in and made it this, you know, astounding thing. But hearing things like that and going, and that's fucking Tom Hardy. It took him that long to, uh, uh, to get that made. So Is there going to be a Taboo be season two? Because uh, season one was fucking amazing. There's meant to be, apparently. But again, it's one of them that I've been being told there's going to be a new season of it for a long time. But apparently it's the nearest it's been. Like, when it came out on Netflix, I put a little a message in our kind of our group going, look at this. Like, I did one post about this and all the comments are season two, season two. And then supposedly... Tom and Stephen and the producers and all that have talked about it but more. What's but Tom Hardy? I'd love to have a pint with Tom Hardy. What's Tom Hardy like in real life? Is he sound? Um, he's s- sober for starters, so he knows his shit, man. Like I've had car journeys with him where it will just be him b- breaking down a particular thing about a character and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. He'll he'll go as deep. Like again, guarantee some kind of neurodivergence and that kind of thing because because wow. he'll just be so. Tom Hardy recognizes details that other people wouldn't recognise him yeah. what he's doing. Yeah, 100%, 100%, yeah. I wanted him there, if he could be, for my scenes, because I want him to say, change this. And he did. I'm, like, I'm in, in Venom 2 really briefly, but I'm, I'm jumping up against this window in like a, men's, uh, a jail hospital for the criminally insane, like supervillains kind of thing. And the first few, few takes, I'm smashing my head on the window going crazy and he just pops down and goes just move your hand over a little bit which sounds stupid but where the camera was you you weren't getting that extra bit of energy you you were getting part of the energy but not that small bit I wasn't aware enough of what that camera was seeing I'm seeing right my eyes are in but your hand isn't and just tiny little things like just move that in there and it'll be more impactful and scary and it's like that's a tiny scene that's a throwaway part of this film but he could give me a little a little note to improve it i'm gonna open up the (laughs) questions now to the audience we've got uh two floating microphones um so first off you um we're talking a little bit about um podcasts or art that helped you guys get through the pandemic and definitely could you um, could you bring the mic a little bit closer better Yeah. yeah there you go uh, your podcast definitely helped me get through the incredibly shitty winter of 2020 to 21 and that awful oh, pandemic. Thank you. So thank you very much for that. And um, the question I wanted to ask both of you is any um, specific art or anything which has been really meaningful to you, uh, either more recently within the pandemic or any other points in your life that you would love to give a shout out to in reference and to play up? Any piece of art recently? Well, for me in the pandemic, there was, it was, there was loads of stuff that was just created. So it depends on your, your definition of art. But there was a thing on YouTube called No More Jockeys, which just gave me so much joy. It's three guys, Tim Key, Alex Horn, and Mark Watson playing a game that they invented over Zoom. And there's fucking hundreds of hours of it now. And it's, it's wonderful. But t- Twitch as well, man. I got into Twitch... Mm-hmm. Through you, through David Earl, and through Limmy, 
And someone that I watch loads of on now, I was, t I was telling you about earlier, is a guy called at 10.30, and most of his streams, he's not playing games. He'll play games every now and then, but most of the time, he's creating, he's making art, he's making projects. At the moment, he's 3D printed, like, when we were all playing a game called Rust with Limmy and that, someone in that game really helped him in one moment. I said to thank him, he's 3D printing the, the AK-47 from Rust, and he's like sanding it and painting it and using all sorts of things. And that's his streams for like a month. He's just working on this cool project and that kind of thing. That buzzes me to see people just working on stuff that's not my realm at all. It's mm -hmm. not podcasting, it's not acting, it's not this, it's not that. It's just something that they're really passionate about. And then having a look in the corner and going, oh, they've got hundreds of people who just want to watch them yeah. create and enjoy that. And that's fucking, I love that shit. Um, for me, so I wasn't, I love going to art galleries. I fucking adore art galleries. And throughout the pandemic, I wasn't able to go to art galleries. So I was in Madrid about three weeks ago and I just stood staring at a painting by Diego Velasquez of an inbred Spanish king called Philip. And I just adored it because it was the first painting that I was in front of for two fucking years. Now it helped that I was on a load of fucking legal Spanish weed, but <laughs> that to me was the most important piece of art I've seen over the pandemic. Not because it was so incredible, because this was the first painting I've been around in two fucking years. So Diego Velasquez's portrait of uh, King Philip of Spain, where he has a huge jaw and a weird tongue. I can't believe I picked a Twitch streamer and you come up with fucking Velasquez <coughs> but you know, in Spain. Do you know what? I've been really enjoying Twitch recently. Yours is boy. far more valid. <laughs> Yours is a lot more valid. Yours, mine is Diego Velasquez being forced to paint a Spanish king because they're paying his wage. Yours is some Scottish fella making a fucking AK-47 on a video game and a lot of, like, that's way cooler than that. I love it. That's participatory art. Mine is just standard European art that upholds colonialism. It was mostly the hash, I'll be honest. <laughs> so that was my podcast with the wonderful Scrobius Pip, an absolute gentleman. Check out his podcast, Distraction Pieces. Look him up online. I'll be back to you next week with some description of hot take. In the meantime, I hope you have a charming week. Rub the belly of a dog. Slow blink at a cat. Smell a leaf before it decays. The leaves are elderly at the moment. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Whoop 4.0 is a fitness tracker and it's an app. Actually, it's more than just a fitness tracker. It's it's a personalized digital fitness and health coach that monitors the physiology of your body 24-7 and it does it with this incredibly non-invasive wearable device. And by non-invasive, I mean you hardly know you're wearing it. It's a band that you can put on your wrist or you could put it on your upper arm or you could put it on your leg but it's not bulky, it's non-invasive so you don't really know that you're wearing it. Now, I mention exercise a lot. Exercise is a very, very important part of my life. Mainly for just feeling good, resilience and mental health reasons. That's why I exercise regularly. I don't exercise for physical aesthetic reasons that doesn't interest me personally but when i'm physically fit as a result of exercise i do enjoy the flexibility it gives me the energy throughout my day that it gives me also just a general feeling of strength for bodily awareness when i go to the gym and i exercise every muscle in my body when those muscles grow and hurt then i become aware of those muscles So when I'm meditating and I'm doing something like a a mindfulness meditation and I'm trying to ground myself in my body, when I sit down to meditate, I can be aware of a tiny little muscle on the bottom of my back or a small little muscle at the back of my calf. Because I'm working them out regularly, I have better bodily awareness and this then helps me ground myself when I'm meditating. I love the process of exercising. I love the free brain chemicals that it gives me. I love the feeling of mindfulness and positivity while I'm exercising. I love the resilience that exercise gives me for the rest of the day. Exercise for me personally is 50 to 60% of my mental health regime. It fuels my capacity to use mental health tools and emotional tools. What I enjoy about Whoop 4.0 is that as an app, it places emphasis on rest and recovery. I want to exercise to feel good rather than look good. I'm also not necessarily focused on goals. I'm not trying to reach a certain size or look a certain way. I want to enjoy running and going to the gym as a process-based activity. My goal is enjoying and loving the act of exercising and the act of recovery as well because going to the gym and lifting weights feels amazing because I get those beautiful chemicals while I'm in the act of lifting weights. But then the rest of the day, I have a wonderful sense of achievement. I feel that lovely burn in my muscles where I know that they're growing and recovering. My appetite is different than on a day that I didn't exercise. After I exercise, I want wholesome, nutritious food and I look forward to cooking it and repairing the muscles that I exerted previously that day. Also, my sleep that night is going to be deeper and more restorative because my body is in repair mode. I'm not thinking about getting bigger, getting smaller. I'm focusing on feeling fantastic and loving exercise for the sake of exercise, for the process of it, because it's wonderful fun. Whoop 4.0 supports this process. It doesn't shame me because I haven't reached 
targets. It enables me to enjoy exercise as a process and reminds me to rest so that I can continue doing that for as long as I want. So if exercise is really important to you, like it is to me, and you like the sound of Whoop, you can give it a go and get a month's free Whoop membership if you just go to join.whoop.com forward slash blindby and you can get started.